Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello there, my friend, and welcome in to the Stream Police Podcast. I am Clint Davis. I talk movies and television from my closet in beautiful Columbus, Ohio. And in just a little bit, we'll be hearing from our good friend, my good friend and yours, Andy Sedlak, who uh, likes to take us through what's going on in music right now here every month on the Stream Police Podcast. We're finally going to hear from him from his new studio at his house in Cleveland, Ohio. He just moved up there, and uh, he wasn't with us last month here on the show because, uh, you know, kind of getting his, his new place set up and all that, but we'll hear from him this month. So uh, the wait is over, my friend. Episode 72 of the Stream Police Podcast. I can't believe we've been bringing it to you for so long now. October 2019. And, you know, in October, we have a little tradition we do every year here on the show. Uh, when it comes to the greatest TV show theme song of all time. And I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me go ahead and uh, get the pleasantries out of the way. Like I said, my name is Clint Davis. You can always email me at theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis, M-R Clint Davis. And uh, I especially recommend you follow me on Instagram because... Uh, that is where, in my Instagram stories, I post what I'm watching every night. Usually every night I'm pretty much watching a movie, most nights of the week anyway, when I'm able to and work allows me when, uh, well, when Emerson allows me to as well, my son, uh, I'm usually watching a movie and uh, I post them right there on uh, on Instagram and my story at Mr. Clint Davis so you can find out what it is that I'm watching. If you want to keep score, at home. All right, let me go ahead and get my stogie going. I like to light it up here in the closet to set the mood, and uh, let's 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 get that going now. Only in the world of podcasting could you hear from a guy sitting in his closet smoking a stogie. So, like I said, every October, going back to the beginning of this show, going back several years now, we bring you this show every month here. So, obviously, our episode numbers aren't quite as high as those shows that bring them to you all week, every week, all year long. Uh, but we're proud of every episode we bring you here of the, of the uh, program, and uh, hopefully, you enjoy checking it out every month. Hopefully, it's something that you look forward to because it's something that we look forward to bringing you certainly here every month. And what we do every October. In our little segment called The Greatest TV Show Theme Song of All Time this week is pick out a TV theme song that's kind of eerie. 
it's a little fitting with Halloween, right? So in the past episodes uh, in October months of this show, I've inducted theme songs like Unsolved Mysteries, which was our pick last year at this time. Uh, American Horror Story Hotel was one that we put in here. Alfred Hitchcock Presents is one that we've put in uh, to this segment as well in October's. Uh, October's past, I should say. But this time, I'm going to pick one that's not exactly scary like those other theme songs were, but is about as tied to Halloween, I would say, as any theme song in TV history, even though, like I said, I wouldn't necessarily call it a scary one. That's right. I know it's one of those that you know immediately upon hearing it. It's the Adams Family theme song from the classic television show that aired on ABC from 1964 to 1966. I was blown away when I was looking up uh, the Adams Family to research it a little bit to do this segment that that show only aired for two seasons. It was only on for two years, 64 to 66. And the total number of episodes, very little for a show that we feel like has as much cultural reach as this one does. 64 total episodes of The Addams Family aired on ABC from 1964 to 1966. And to me, that's just, that was mind-blowing because I think of The Addams Family as one of the most iconic you know, TV theme songs, TV families in the history of television. Those costumes, those characters, everyone knows them. People still love them to this day. And, uh, you know, this theme song especially is just one of those that has lasted for so long. So it's amazing to me that it was only on for two years when it was uh, actually on the air as a new series. For the uninitiated, The Addams Family is this show about this totally weird but completely loving family that lived in an otherwise normal world. They lived in the regular 1960s, as we know it, in America, and they were just these total oddballs in the middle of regular, you know, blah, vanilla, suburban society. They owned this massive gothic mansion in the middle of town. Everyone in the family is morbid and some kind of monster or freak in some way or another, but they all love each other so much, and it just kind of goes without saying, and they don't really ever acknowledge how weird they are, but the people around them certainly acknowledge how weird they are, but they, in their family, they don't think there's anything wrong with how they are, and that's the the beautiful message behind this show and why I think it's just a timeless favorite for anyone because we're all a little weird in different ways but this is a great show about being you know kind of outcasts and owning it and not caring what everyone else thinks and uh, loving each other no matter what your differences may be so their names were all memorable of course in the family there were uh, their looks were memorable as well it was Gomez of course was the dad and Morticia was the wife and Gomez was always kissing Morticia's arm up and down and he was very romantic speaking French to her and everything else and they had you know kind of just a great marriage and uh, plenty of uh, sexual chemistry between Gomez and Morticia, certainly for a couple that has been together as long as they have and uh, have two kids at the age that they have. Their kids, Pugsley and Wednesday, trying to kill each other with sharp weapons that they treated as toys, you know, just in the name of childhood playtime. You had old Lurch, who was answering the door and, you know, saying his classic line, you rang. 
and just looking like some kind of massive monster. I don't know exactly what Lurch was supposed to be, but he was just, you know, a weirdo like the rest of them were. And then Uncle Fester, of course, with his bald head uh, and sleeping on a bed of nails every night. This family is just fantastic. Everyone knows them. Everyone loves them. And this, to me, was maybe the ultimate TV family ever. I mean, can you think of a TV family that you'd rather kind of hang out with than the Adams family? I think The Simpsons is one of the great TV families ever, but I'd probably rather hang out with the Adams family. I don't know. I mean, uh, the Bundys were pretty great for their time. There have been a lot of great TV families, uh, but the Adams family stands right up there with the absolute best of them. Um, for many, many reasons, and especially because they just always loved each other and they were always watching out for each other uh, in this world that really could have been very mean to them, but they, they didn't care one way or another. The house is a museum when people come to see them. They really are a scream, the Adams Family. I always think of the Adams Family, I think of the Munsters. The same, uh, like at the same time, I just, those two shows to me are very connected because they're kind of similar ideas, right? Again, the Munsters is this family of actual like monsters who live together in a, you know, a weird house in an otherwise normal quote unquote world. Uh, the Munsters though had the even better joke, I feel like, of the, having the one girl in the family who looked like just a regular little white bread girl. Um, and she was considered kind of the freak of the family, um, but she just looked like, you know, everyone else in the world. So that, to me, was the, the one thing the Munsters had over the Adams Family as far as a great joke goes. But I was wondering about those shows, like when they were on, which one ripped off the other. And the Adams Family, of course, was based on this newspaper comic, magazine comic strip that was done by uh, Charles Adams uh, back in, I think it was the 1930s, 1940s. And it was a very popular strip. So the show was based on that strip. So the idea came first from the Adams Family. But I was wondering about the TV series when they kind of came out because they're so similar. And I was really weirded out by the fact that these two shows debuted seven days between each other. So seven days uh, after The Addams Family debuted in 1964 on ABC, The Munsters debuted on CBS. And both shows were kind of great in their own ways. And both shows ended up running for two seasons and wrapping up within a month of each other. The parallels between those two series just kind of really eerie. The theme song for the Munsters is great also, but let's get back to talking about the Adams Family. Neat. Sweet. Petite. The theme song for the Adams Family was written by a guy named Vic Mizzy, who, if you are a diehard fan of the Stream Police podcast and a diehard fan of the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week, you will recognize the name Vic Mizzy. We've mentioned him before in this segment. He also wrote the theme for Green Acres, which is the theme song that we inducted back in the December 2017 edition of the show. So these themes couldn't be more different, but both of them are beloved to this day, and both of them are quite fun, Green Acres and The Addams Family. Uh, the music is great in The Addams Family theme song, including the finger snaps, but to me it's the lyrics that really push it over the edge into true greatness. I mean, the rhymes are fantastic. Their house is a museum where people come to see them. Come on, that's genius. And the use of the word ooky to rhyme with kooky and spooky. I mean, who doesn't think of the word ooky when they think of the Adams Family theme song? Because where else would you ever hear that word? It was just necessity being the mother of invention as far as coming up with a rhyme goes. He just spooky and kooky. Yeah, I'll go with ooky as well. And it turns out to be the perfect word to describe what this family is. So Vic Mizzy, total genius. 
uh, when it comes to writing music and lyrics. So get a witch's shawl on, a broomstick you can crawl on. We're gonna pay a call on the Adams Family. The Adams Family theme song was eventually released as a single, but it did not chart, which makes it a rare failure in that regard. So they tried to put it out as a as a, a chart climbing single, but it didn't even land on the Hot 100 chart. Shocker to me. I was uh, surprised by that because, as we've seen before in this segment, TV theme songs back in the days of the three networks, TV theme songs typically could be big hit songs because people knew them so well, loved them, connected them to sitting at home, watching a show with their family and uh, being a TV series that they love. And those songs usually did pretty well. Maybe it's just because of the the style of the song, not really um, great for radio. Maybe it was just a little too silly for uh, becoming a hit tune. But it's a hit in our eyes, and we're counting it as the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. The Adams Family Theme, written by Vic Mizzy in family man that just does not go away that is a thing that has been around since the 1930s as a comic strip and now you know when i was a kid uh, the two movies came out the adams family movies with raul julia and uh, angelica houston and little christina ricci and christopher lloyd those movies were so great i loved both of those and i've rewatched them since and they're still very funny um in just nailing what what makes the adams family so great so that was like back in the early 90s my generation got to know the Adams family because of those movies. And now as I'm talking to you, a movie is about to come out. It's an animated version of the Adams family uh, that's about to hit theaters right now. So it's again, it's a new generation that uh, will get to meet this family again and fall in love with them all over again. And I'm sure in 20, 30 years from now, we're going to probably see another iteration of the Adams family, maybe coming back to TV again for the first time since the 1960s. So anyway, the Adams family, just continues to live on. Did you ever watch the TV series? I never really saw it. I, I, I caught a couple episodes of it when I was a kid. Um, I believe on Nick at Night or maybe just on syndicated, like syndicated programming on some network. I can't remember where it was that I saw it, but uh, I liked it. I thought it was funny, but I never got to watch all the episodes of the show. I just, it was not one of those shows that I've seen at all. So are you an Adams Family aficionado? I wonder. And what... Do you think of the new movie? I'm uh, I'm wanting to know what uh, people who really uh, have known and loved the Adams Family for a long time think about the new animated movie. Seems like it'd be a natural for animation, just all the the goofy things that this family does. So television, we talk a lot about television on this show, uh, on the Stream Police. My kind of centerpiece on this show is talking about TV, just what's streaming, what's out there right now, because there are so many choices for you. And we all have heard the phrase, the golden age of television, which has been kind of going on since 1999, really. It's been considered since, like, The Sopranos debuted and since The West Wing was on and Lost and all those great shows, Six Feet Under, that kind of came out right there in the late 1990s. 
TV has been very full of itself in the last few years, in case you hadn't noticed. And if you needed any evidence as to how full of itself television has gotten in the last few years, look no further than this year's Emmy Awards ceremony. You remember when TV was always kind of like the butt of all the jokes, like act, big time actors never wanted to do TV. They thought it was beneath them. It was, you know, the cinema was the only place where you would see big time A-list talent. It hasn't been that way for a long time. I mean, Katherine Hepburn was doing television performances, was doing television many series and, and, and like live theater performances on TV. She was doing them back in the late 1980s. So, uh, and I think even earlier than that. So, I mean, big time, Lawrence Olivier, was doing TV. Um, he was doing, again, stage plays kind of done on television in the 1980s with these great casts. So it's not like a totally new thing as far as great actors being on television, but it's definitely be- gotten more in vogue in the last 20 years, I would say, since, again, those shows came out kind of in the late 90s and HBO showed itself as this network where you could really take a lot of risks and and tell great stories without the constraints of movie uh, length um, being in your way. And you could, you know, get paid great money to do it as well. But TV has just gotten so pompous. And I really noticed that when I was reading up on the Emmys this year. I did not watch the Emmys this year. I just didn't. I haven't watched the Emmys for the last couple of years. I just have kind of stopped caring. And I'll I'll tell you why in a, a few minutes. But... If you needed evidence as to why TV has gotten, just has, has its head stuck up its own ass, during the Emmys this year, Brian Cranston walked out. That great savior of television entertainment, Brian Cranston, who's been renowned for his work in Malcolm in the Middle and Seinfeld and, of course, Breaking Bad. He walked out onto the stage and delivered these utterly pompous words. Television has never been bigger. Television has never mattered more. And television has never been this damn good. I mean, if you're somebody who goes to work every day at, you know, a job that you don't exactly love, but you got to do it because it pays the bills. And you just want to come home and watch TV and be entertained. And you don't want to have to think so much about it. And you don't want to feel like you're being talked down to when you watch television, which is this device that you've paid $2,000 for to sit in your house and take up a bunch of room and you pay for a cable subscription or a streaming subscription to whatever different company you use to get your, you know, your cord cut television delivered to you. You don't want to be talked down to. You sit down and you turn it on on Sunday night and that those are the words you hear. Television has never mattered more the way he's saying it, I mean, doesn't it just sound like, doesn't it just kind of get on your nerves to hear it said that way? I mean, isn't it just, like, doesn't it sound like they're talking about medicine or something? I mean, he could give the same, if you just take out the words TV and you change it to cancer research, he could be giving an an address in front of the World Health Organization or something like that. But no, he's talking about TV, All right. He's talking about the medium that brought us jackass. Okay, And, you know, I love TV as much as anyone. I sit here every month spending an hour and a half of my time talking to you about TV, making no money from it, just doing it because I love it, watching countless hours of TV so I can tell you about them here on the show. But when I hear something like that, it just kind of makes me cringe. Right. And award shows generally get a bad rap for being these three-hour events where celebrities stand around in awe of themselves with plenty of false modesty, of course, 
Uh, but I think that this kind of took that self-importance to a level that I don't think I've ever seen before. Even in all my years of watching the Academy Awards, I don't think I've ever seen this level of having your head up your own ass as much as I did during just that little moment with Brian Cranston at the Emmys. And would it surprise you to know, after you've heard that clip, would it surprise you to know that the ratings for the Emmys hit an all-time low this year by far? So let's look at Emmy ratings real quick here. So in the year 2000, 21 million people watched the Emmys. Okay, 21 million people in 2000 were watching the Emmys. That's a fantastic number. It comes right as TV's so-called golden age begins. Okay, in the year 2000, 21 million people. Let's fast forward to 2018. We are well into the era of peak TV. We're in the era where everyone knows television is the best it's ever been. It's fantastic. It's People are, have been saying for years that movies are dead and TV's where it's at now. TV is, has replaced movies as the great American medium uh, for storytellers and serious artists. In 2018, the Emmys were watched by 10 million people. So the audience is cut in half over the course of 18 years. All right, and that was an all-time low rating. Their 10 million was the all-time low bar for Emmys viewership, and this goes back a long time. The Emmys have been on TV for a long while. Uh, I'm sorry I didn't look the year up before I got on here. I should have. Now I'm realizing that, but it's been on for a long time. Okay, you can you can ask uh, Alexa that yourself for how long the Emmys have been on. This year's ceremony. So I told you, 2018, 10 million people watched, all-time low. This year's ceremony. The viewership went down to 6 million people. So again, 10 million was the all-time low by a mile in 2018. That number got cut in half again to 6 million people, almost in half. So you're talking a quarter of how many people were watching it in 2000. And 2000, I mean, it's not like in the year 2000 there weren't options to watch. We're not talking about the days of three, four networks anymore. In 2000, cable was well, I mean, satellite TV had been going on for a long time. People had a million channels to choose from. They didn't have streaming TV to choose from, but they had all these cable networks that they could watch whenever they wanted to. So people didn't have to watch the Emmys. And 21 million people, I mean, that's not a huge, huge number. It's a great number, but it's not like you know going to blow you away or anything it wasn't record high viewership but now we're down to six million people watching the emmys in 2019 it cannot get much lower than that for something airing on a sunday night on network tv so what's the reason behind it why is no one watching the emmys anymore because the oscars continues to get decent ratings uh the oscars certainly is not going to be anywhere near six million the grammys gets about 20 million people every single year so that 2000 number for the Emmys, that's what the Grammys was getting last year. So what is it about the Emmys? Why is no one watching that? TV, to me, it's just that it's so splintered now. And the chasm between the people who watch something that aired on a network and the people who care about the shows that are nominated for Emmys could not be wider. I mean, talk to your parents. Talk to the older people in your life. And when I do that, when I, my mom, the shows that she watches, my mother-in-law, the shows that she watches, they watch all the shows that are on CBS and NBC. They don't really watch a bunch of shows that are on Netflix and Amazon and FX and HBO. They're not going out there for those shows. It's just not that important to them. They just don't care that much about that. 
I honestly would not be shocked to see the Emmys start airing on a cable network like TNT in a few years. That's what I expect to see is going to happen with the Emmys. I just don't think a network can give that valuable primetime Sunday night slot in the fall to something that is going to get 6 million viewers when they could air something that you know could do better than that and would ultimately be less of a production and less of a you know, just less of a, a deal to put on. I mean, the Emmys is just, it's a tough program to even put on. So I could see it in 10 years from now, the Emmys airing on TNT and they're simulcast live on Amazon Prime, like the way they do Thursday Night Football now. So, I mean, it's just, I don't know why a network would continue to air it when the ratings are so bad and when their own shows aren't even nominated, like network TV shows are just not nominated for Emmys. It's just not the way it goes. It's all the cable networks and the streaming networks that get nominated for Emmys. So what's in it for the networks? Why do they do it? Why do they air them? I don't know. I mean, it made sense 20 years ago when all the shows nominated for for the awards were network TV shows and when the viewership was high. But now no one watches it and their own shows aren't even nominated. So I don't even understand why the networks are still in this thing. Um, and, you know, further in talking about people not watching or caring about the Emmys, even though nobody on earth talks about shows like The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Mr. Robot and Fleabag, which these are shows that are winning a lot of Emmys now. I don't think specialty shows winning awards is to blame for viewership going down because a lot of people will say, well, no one's ever heard of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. No one's ever heard of Fleabag. Yet these are the shows, win no one's ever heard of Transparent. Yet these are the shows winning the awards every year. So of course no one's watching it. I don't necessarily think that's the problem. Because look, Game of Thrones is the most popular show in the history of subscription-based television. It's the most popular show by far in HBO's history. I've talked about that a lot on this show before. I talked about it last month when I was doing my obituary for Game of Thrones. But over the past two years in, at the Emmys, Game of Thrones has won a ton of awards. It has set records with how many awards it's won. So Game of Thrones has dominated the Emmys the last few years. Very popular show. But nobody watched the Emmys. So it's not the fault of, don't blame it on Fleabag and, and don't blame it on Transparent and these other Amazon and Netflix shows that are winning Emmys. It's not their fault because clearly Game of Thrones can't bring the viewership up either. The problem is that it's not network shows being nominated and the Emmys air on a network and the people who watch award shows are typically older. They're typically the people who would watch network TV shows. So it's just not, there's just a big disconnect in who's going to watch this show. I just don't think the Emmys are ever going to be a ratings juggernaut like they were unless it goes back to nominating more network TV shows. If the Emmys wants to get its ratings up, it needs to count on strong shows from network TV, and that is just not happening right now. Um, or they need to go back to nominating more popular mainstream shows across those major awards. The Grammys... I was talking about the Grammys getting 20 million viewers every single year. Well, the Grammys knows what to do. They don't nominate records from that many genres that may be fantastic simply because nobody has ever heard of them. So, I mean, you're not going to see some Americana album being nominated for Album of the Year and being a front runner. You might get one of those Dark Horse nominees every year get nominated for Album of the Year, but typically they're not going to win it. So, you know, typically every year it's going to be people like Adele and Ed Sheeran, and Taylor Swift, the people who move records like nobody else. Those are huge record-selling artists. Those are the people that are going to win the awards because those are the people that everyone knows and wants to see on the show. So the, the Grammys knows how to do it. The Emmys 
you know, at the risk of being too legitimate as far as giving their awards to shows that are actually too good, the Grammys is kind of screwing itself in terms of viewership. So I don't know. It's a tough thing to do because the, the, at the end of the day, I'm sorry, the Emmys, the Emmys is a TV show. So, but it's also an award show. So if it wants to be taken seriously, it's going to suffer rating sets. And I just don't see it being something that's viable on network TV in primetime. That's too valuable a slot. So I don't know. Those are my thoughts on the Emmys. I, I didn't watch them this year. I don't think I watched them last year either. So I'm among the people who are, and I care about TV as much as anyone. So if I'm not watching, I just don't want to watch a show that sits there and pats itself on the back. And even with all the TV I watch, I haven't seen a lot of the shows that are nominated. And I don't really, like, them winning Emmys is not going to make me watch them. It's just not going to happen. I told you two years ago in the first season of Fleabag aired, I told you on this show that I thought Phoebe Waller-Bridge was one of the great new talents in TV, that I thought it was a very funny show, uh, that I recommended it highly. If you go back in time and find the episode where I talk about Fleabag, you'll hear me bragging about it, but I haven't watched the second season yet. So I'm glad to see it winning awards, but you know, two years ago I was telling you that that was a great show. So it's there. The Emmys are a little late to the game for me on that series, but it's just not, I just don't care that much about watching the Emmys. It's not to me what the Oscars is. It's not that big uh, event and TV shows are just harder to compare against each other to me than movies are. Movies are easier to compare against each other and they're not even that easy to compare against each other uh but tv shows definitely are not easy to compare so i don't know i think the emmys is just a lost cause as far as being a big ratings juggernaut i just do not see it coming back because tv as brian cranston said television has never mattered more but when you say it that way you sound like an asshole and nobody really wants to just be talked down to they kind of tv i think still in the minds of most people is second-class citizenry and it's just something to turn on and laugh for a half hour while i'm eating my dinner and then i'm going to go on to do something else more meaningful i'm going to play with my kids or something like that so i don't know did you watch the emmys did you have any thoughts on the hostless ceremony this year i don't think not having a host had anything to do with the ratings being low either i just i just don't all right i'm going to toss things over to andy now we'll see what he's been listening to and check out how he's doing up there in Cleveland now, but he's, uh, he's moved on up to the northeast side. When we come back, I'm going to talk about two documentaries, two long-form documentaries that I watched recently, one on CNN and one on PBS. Uh, we'll get to all that. I'll talk about my favorite thing I watched this month, and I'll give you some recommendations for horror movies streaming right now. But first, let's uh, check in with our good pal, Andy Sedlak. Take it away, my friend. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. 
burrow.com slash ACAST. Ah, thank you so much. Gone for a month, then back for a month, then gone for another month. Now I'm here to stay, my friends. You are stuck with me. And for the first time, I'm joining you from lovely Cleveland, Ohio. Moved up here in mid-August. Lived out of boxes for a while. You remember um, the uh, the cardboard city from high school? Did your school do that, where you set up a bunch of cardboard boxes and uh, camp out and basically try to simulate what it's like to be homeless for a night? Well, that's what it looked like inside my house. Cardboard boxes everywhere. Digging out clothes for work every morning. Uh, took a couple weeks before I I could locate <laughs> my microphone here, uh, but I'll tell you when I when I came across it when I finally found it it was like running into an old friend. So now I've got the mic set up, and it's uh, it's officially home. Got things set up uh, here in the spare bedroom. It's nice. You know what? There's there's carpet on the floor here, and, and and I think that you know it soaks up some of the some of the sound. It's it's not you know my voice isn't bouncing around so much, which I which I like. All right, let's get on with it. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. Look, I was born in 1987, so I'm currently 31. They call that a millennial. A millennial. I I grew up with this. And I grew up with this. And also, this. Those were the sounds of my age. But do you know what is now one of the fastest growing genres of music among people my age? Ambient music. Yeah. Ambient. Never heard of ambient? Here's a taste. Here's a formal definition. Ambient music is a genre that emphasizes tone, 
and atmosphere over traditional structure or rhythm. A form of slow instrumental music, it uses repetitive but gentle, soothing sound patterns that is often described as sonic wallpaper. It is atmospheric, visual, or possesses an unobtrusive quality. Take another listen. This is ambient music. Ambient music's popularity grew alongside what they called the Internet Age, okay? That's the period of time in the 21st century where there was a shift from traditional industry and into an economy um, based on information technology and, and kind of digital building blocks, in other words, that's our period of time, friends. That's, that's our era right now, baby. We're front and center. Ambient music also has close ties with anime and is particularly popular with fans in that community. Here's a clip of an ambient artist named Taiko talking about the genre. Keep in mind, this guy's a serious artist. He's been nominated for a Grammy. Uh, I mean, I... I really got into music kind of um, indirectly through computers. Like well, I, I never, I never even did anything musically until I was uh, in college, and I started. I was studying computer science, so I started messing around with computers. Uh, I mean, I was always influenced by Ulrich Schnauss and Boards of Canada. That's kind of what made me want to make music, and uh, and then slowly it kind of evolved. And, and when I made Dive, I put together the band for the live show, and uh, the way that the the set started sounding and the song started changing. I was like, oh, this I want to like capture this on a record. And so that's what Awake was about. I've gone into record stores and seen whole sections dedicated to ambient music. And you heard it there. The genre is influenced by computers and like obscure German guys. Its, it's roots are simultaneously technological and European. And I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying it's interesting because country music, rock music, blues music all came from the church and like salt of the earth type working people. As a result, the music manifested in physical ways, namely dancing. The poets and all those guys came later. But the major American music genres first manifested first manifested themselves in physical ways. This is headier stuff. It's not coming from salt-of-the-earth types. It's coming largely from programmers. It's music for the head. Music for the head. It's also, by design, an accessory. Its goal is is to aid you while you do something else. 
It's not the main event. It's not necessarily made to be focused on. It's something that is a substitute for silence. It's popular with gamers whose main focus is gaming. And the music soaks up the silence while they play. The genre is popular with students whose main focus is studying. It's music for the head, but not for the mind. Does that make sense? It's for the head, but not for the mind. And that's quite a tightrope to walk. Brian Eno is credited as the inventor of ambient music. And, and let me quickly tell you about Brian Eno. He was in Roxy Music and worked behind the scenes on records by U2 and by David Bowie. Also, um, Talking Heads and John Cale. He has a certain style, airy, synthy cinematic, arty, I guess is the word, arty, art house, like maybe a little snobby. He tells a story about how he came up with the idea for ambient music as he was recuperating from an injury. That's when I got this scar, actually, from that, that accident. Um, a friend of mine came over to see me, and I was confined to bed. I couldn't move. But as she left, she said, shall I put a record on? And I said, please. And she put a record on and then left. The record was much too quiet, but I couldn't reach to turn it up. And it was raining outside, so it was a record of 18th century harp music, I remember. And so I lay there at first kind of frustrated by this situation, but then I started listening to the rain and listening to the, these odd notes of the harp that were just loud enough to be heard above the rain. And... This was a great musical experience for me, and I suddenly thought of this idea of making music that didn't impose itself on your space in the same way, but created a sort of landscape that you could belong to, you could be part of. And this, I called this, uh, I pompously gave it a new name, which I called ambient music, and it became something I no longer recognize. Well, that was, yeah. <laughs> of course gonna get he took that concept and ran with it. He released an album called Music for Airports. Not kidding around, that's what it was called. Came out in 1978. So here's a cut from Music for Airports. There are only four tracks on the album, two on the first side, two on the second. This is the lead-off track called One Over One.
So that's where ambient music started. That's the rock around the clock of ambient music, if you will. What's not surprising is that this genre is growing with technology. And technology, of course, is growing all the time. It's inevitable. But I wonder, is there an elemental risk of losing some of the physicality of music when you rely heavily, and in some cases solely, on music that bypasses performance as a means of creation? In other words, if you don't literally put some blood and sweat into playing it, will it be harder to get an audience to put their own blood and sweat into absorbing it? You say, no, Andy, look, we've all seen the festivals where folks are dancing and having a good time. Nobody's playing instruments. Music will survive. And that's true. But those people, you know, they're also relying on past behavior there. They know what you're supposed to do at a concert. You're supposed to move. But the further and further removed we get from that, if the performer themselves aren't getting down and dirty, then will the audience. Of course, there's no answer to that. Not today, anyhow. I'm not anti-technology. Technology has afforded me many different things that I take great delight in, including this podcast. But the physicality and rock and hip-hop and country and blues and jazz and gospel and metal is what seals the first bond with an audience. If you downplay that, or if it's substituted for something else, How does that change the bond between musician and listener? What happens if you're not shaken? That's Eddie Money and Shaken, a hit from 1982. Eddie Money died in September from complications after a surgery. He'd had health problems. In fact, he was recently diagnosed with cancer. You know, I liked Eddie Money because there's nothing more rock and roll than a dork who makes it. Rock and roll was built on dorks and misfits who made good. You look at a guy like Eddie Money, he was never the type of guy who'd make it as an actor or a politician or an athlete. You could tell just by looking at him. It was like rock or nothing. The genre has a special place for people like that. I read a couple of obituaries who made passing comments that Money was not known for his deep cuts, that he was, after all, a singles artist. That's true. He had a lot of big singles. But just because he wasn't known for his deep cuts didn't mean that he didn't have any. So in tribute to Eddie Money, I want to give you some Eddie Money deep cuts. Let's do it. This is a song uh, from 1982, Just Like Shaken. 
In fact, it was on the same record. It's called Running Away, and I just love the way this song opens up. Money wrote all of these songs, by the way. He wasn't just a performer. From 1987, this is called Calm Before the Storm. This next one goes all the way back to his first album in 1977. It's Save a Little Room in Your Heart for Me. I'll give you one more. This is called It Could Happen to You. On an afternoon near the end of June, we first met and fell in love. Being both too shiny, the question Love you, Ed. Thanks for the tunes, my friend. You made things more fun. Eddie Money, by the way, was 70. We also lost Ginger Baker, best known as a drummer in Cream. Wild Man. Not necessarily my favorite style of drumming, but, but there's no question he was an animal. And he pushed the limits of what could be done behind a kit. Ginger Baker was 80. Friends, you know we're building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find this playlist up on Spotify. You can enjoy it there. All you have to do is search Stream Police. Every month we add five new songs. And since I just relocated to Cleveland, Paris on the Cuyahoga, 
I want to begin with an artist that was from here. No, it's not Kid Cudi or Joe Walsh or Machine Gun Kelly. This is Bull Moose Jackson, who was born in 1919, died in 1989. Jackson specialized in a type of music that's kind of become known as the dirty blues. Lyrically, it was full of double entendres and was meant to be played in like a crowded club full of dudes shooting whiskey, the kind of guys who would appreciate this kind of thing. And you'll see what I'm talking about here. This is called Nosy Joe. man in town all the women know he goes by the name of nosy joe don't care if they're married he takes his pick long as they're women he's ready to stick his big nose in their business his big nose in their business that's nosy joe the nosiest guy i know nosy joe by cleveland's own bull moose Jackson, you know, these are supposed to be quick hits, these songs, but I'm going to play the second verse as well. This is Nosy Joe, Bull Moose Jackson. Well, he ain't good looking and he ain't big and strong. That guy's got a nose that's four foot long. I'm telling you women, this ain't no giant. If you get too close, this man will drive his big nose in your business. His big nose in your business. That's Nosy Joe, the nosiest guy I know. By the end of the song, things don't turn out real well for Joe. And I'll leave it at that. Next up, it's I Dig a Waitress by Billy Bob Thornton and the Boxmasters. Then I have Mickey Jump and You Wear My Ring. Somewhere down the marriage line, we've gone off the rails. I keep hearing stories, babe. I keep hearing tales. They say there's another man got his eyes on you. If you like him looking wide. Okay, let's see, going, uh, going through the archives here. How about The Cape? Performed by Asleep at the Wheel, the tune was written by Guy Clark. Eight years old with a flower sack cape tied all around his neck. He climbed up on the garage. Figuring what the heck He screwed his courage up so tight The whole thing come unwound He got a running start And bless his heart He's headed for the ground 
He's one of those who knows that life is just a leap of faith. Spread your arms and hold your breath and always trust your king. And finally, with Roy Bitten on piano, it's Wild Heart by Stevie Nicks. Thanks so much. God, this was fun. Talk to you in a month. Behave yourselves. Peace out. There he is, Andy Sedlak. Hit him up at sedlakjournal at gmail.com. S-E-D-L-A-K journal at gmail.com. I know he's always glad to uh, hear what you're listening to and what uh, thoughts you may have on the music business because that's really what he likes to focus on a lot uh, on his part of the segment or part of the show, I should say, every month here on the Stream Police. Again, though, I'm Clint Davis. I talk movies and TV here from my closet in Columbus. I smoke my stogie, and you can find me online at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis on Twitter and Instagram. You can also hit me on Gmail at theclintdavis at gmail.com. T H E Clint Davis at gmail.com. So I watched a couple long form documentaries here in the past uh, month since the last time I spoke to you, and both of them are streaming right now for you to check out. So I wanted to tell you what I thought. First off, we're going to go on CNN. They recently aired a. Um, how many parts was it? I want to say this thing was six parts. I want to say, I think this was a six, uh, part 12 hour series, a little bit more than 12 hours, something like that. Anyway, it was called the movies. And as you can guess from the title, this was a documentary looking into the history of the movies. And it was produced by Tom Hanks and his production company. He's done a lot of documentary work for CNN. Um, and they all kind of have the same feel of, uh, they look good. They have, you know, some great clips that they show from historical clips and stuff like that. And they and they get a lot of interviews with big time people. I mean, who's going to turn down something that's being produced by Tom Hanks? I mean, just him being attached to it. He's got a lot of friends in Hollywood. He's got a lot of admirers in Hollywood for good reason. And people just like him. So I think they're happy to lend their talents to something that he uh, is involved with. And this this documentary, the movies 
really did a nice job of getting interviews with people who I wanted to hear from when it came to their opinions on movies. It had Martin Scorsese in it. It had Steven Spielberg in it giving interviews. It had Paul Thomas Anderson. It had John Singleton uh, giving interviews. It had Tom Hanks himself. Um, I think Robert Zemeckis was in there, if I'm not mistaken. I think Peter Bogdanovich was in there as well. There were a lot of really talented people from the history of Hollywood, a lot of great actors as well, giving their thoughts uh, on the movies. Robert Redford was in there also uh, talking about things. So it was it was really star-studded kind of deal here. And it started, the first episode of the series was called The Golden Age. And The Golden Age was trying to basically sum up 30 or 40 years of movies into one episode. So it was kind of going back to even silent film, but really more starting in the talkie era. Uh, and going through the 30s and the 40s and the 50s in one single two-hour and change episode. And then from there, each decade this got its own two-plus-hour episodes. The 60s had its own episodes, 70s, 80s, 90s, and then the 2000s, which awkwardly combined the 2000s and the 2010s into one episode. I don't know why they did it that way. I don't know why they didn't do the 2000s and the 2010s because this thing didn't, this documentary didn't air until the last year or so, so they certainly could have done the 2010s in its own episode, and what it ended up doing was kind of making it sound like those two decades didn't matter as much as others, which is really strange because there've been a lot of great movies that have come out in just the 2010s that could have easily taken up their own episode. But my big complaint about this, and I, I didn't love this documentary. I liked it. Uh, I'm somebody who has done a lot of reading on movies, has, has watched a shit ton of movies has watched a lot of documentaries about filmmaking, has read books by directors, about directors, stuff like that. So I know about movie history pretty well. I think I could give you a good rundown on movie history and the movies that you need to watch and the, the important filmmakers, the important actors, and stuff like that. I think I, it's this that is my wheelhouse, if I have a wheelhouse. So when I watch these movie documentaries, I'm I'm more critical than probably a lot of people are. And while this one made me feel good with the clips they showed and the interviews they got and the insights they got into the movies, I didn't love it. I thought it all kind of felt a little bit rushed and a little bit 101. It all felt very introductory to me. It felt a little bit too basic. So uh, the CNN's The Movies was kind of more, to me, for people who already know, uh, or I'm sorry, who don't know about movies. This was not like an advanced level real deep opening my eyes in new ways to movies. I, everything I heard in this, I kind of already knew most of it. Anyway, there were a few people that I hadn't heard so much about. There were a few movies that I didn't know much about at all that I was like immediately like, man, I need to go check these out. Uh, and really what that was, was a lot of, it, it got into the history of a lot of women filmmakers and it got into the history of a lot of indie black filmmakers when it got toward the eighties and nineties that I didn't know a whole lot about, uh, because they're just not that mainstream. So I will give it a lot of credit for that. But this thing spent a lot of time talking about the obvious movies, the mainstream stuff that you've already heard about a million times over the years. If you have paid attention to movies at all, uh, throughout history. So, uh, I was impressed, though, like I said, with some of the people that gave interviews. I found those insights to be very solid. The, that, to me, was the best part about this whole thing. The clips were really good, too, but they just went by too fast. I mean, a decade for two hours just isn't quite enough for something as rich as the history of movies. I mean, I think you could easily do 
if you were breaking down the history of movies, I think you could do two hours for every year of movie history. And I don't think you would be boring us at all. I would watch that two hours for every single year of movie history. And honestly, I think you'd probably still end up leaving stuff out. So I just think with the history of movies, you got to go a little deeper than two hours for a 10 year span. There's just too much to cover too many interesting people, too many landmark films to come out and too much analysis that I feel like you need to get into. Don't just tell me about the making of the movie. Tell me why it mattered. Tell me, give me a critical reading of this movie. That's what I want more of. And that's, what the movies did not get into. It was way more just surfacey. Hey, nostalgia. Remember this great film? Remember this clip? Remember this quote? Let's relive it again. And then let's hear about what happened behind the scenes or whatever. I mean, or somebody's reaction to seeing it for the first time. Also, I'm going to knock this documentary because I think it should not have been called the movies. I think it should have been just been called Hollywood or it should have been called American movies because all they did was talk about American movies did not go into foreign cinema at all. It's one of those, again, those classic American documentaries about Hollywood or about movies where it just makes it seem like Hollywood is all that matters. And anything that wasn't made in Hollywood is just kind of second rate. And that's not true at all. Anyone who's watched any foreign films knows that that's obviously not true. Foreign films typically are better than American movies. They have been anyway, not, I wouldn't say like, uh, quantity wise, I wouldn't say if you grabbed a hundred foreign films and you grabbed a hundred American movies from like a 10 year period that the foreign films would necessarily all be better, but the great foreign movies and the great foreign directors are as good and a lot of times better than the great American movies even are. And for this documentary to be called the movies and to not talk about foreign films at all was just kind of ridiculous to me. And, and it's unfair to people who don't haven't been exposed to foreign films to watch this and think, well, now I know about the history of the movies and I don't need to know anything about these great foreign directors. I mean, you know, names like Bergman don't even come up in this thing and Kurosawa, Tarkovsky. I mean, it's just Kieslowski. I mean, it, there's so many great foreign filmmakers that aren't even mentioned at all in this in this movie and uh you know when you're watching it for 12 hours you think you're probably covering a pretty broad spectrum but you're not really i mean this is ju these are just american movies and most of it is pretty mainstream american uh american filmmakers i'm not saying there are there's not a lot to learn from the movies there certainly is and like like i said i even learned some things from this that i didn't already know and i loved seeing the clips clips are what it's all about to me when i watch the oscars i'm always disappointed by how few clips they show to me the show should almost be all clips and when i watch a 10-hour movie documentary i want to pretty much see clips the whole time i'm not that interested in show me somebody being interviewed i'm way more interested in clips of movies with people talking over the clips or after the clips or whatever uh but this one was really just kind of a clip for a few seconds and then a big interview and then a clip for a few seconds and then an interview again so what I would recommend to you, if you're interested in the kind of thing like CNN's The Movies, if you like this kind of thing, if you are interested in a long-form documentary about the history of movies, the one that I recommend is this documentary from 2011 called The Story of Film and Odyssey. Uh, so again, it came out in 2011. It's called The Story of Film and Odyssey. And this was a British production actually it's a 15 hour long documentary that goes into as it says the story of film 
And it goes through the entire history of movies, and it's not done in really in chronological order. So the way it's done is very interesting. And what the the story of film, I was so floored by. There are no interviews in it. There's just one narrator through the entire thing who exhaustively wrote and researched this movie. His voice might annoy you. He's got like he, he's got. I think the guy was from Northern Ireland, so he's got kind of an Irish accent, but almost even more like a British accent. But yeah, so he's kind of silly. He sounds kind of silly sometimes. He's very serious, and the the thing is very serious. But that might kind of turn you off sometimes. But this is a really high quality documentary into movies and why movies are just the ultimate storytelling vehicle. I think this, this will tell you why the, uh, the story of film and Odyssey, it shows you many more movies that you probably haven't already heard of a hundred times. And it gets more into the analysis of them. It's almost all clips. Like in the 15 hours of it, pretty much the entire thing is clips. It's pretty much 15 hours of movie clips with a guy talking over them as to why and analyzing, not just talking about behind the scenes stuff, but why this is important, what this, this movie is talking about in a certain shot, why cinematography is evocative, why acting, you know, what the difference is between good acting, great acting and bad acting. Um, this is just a very serious look at cinema. And that's why I love the story of film so much. I was uh, engrossed in that thing a few years ago when I first watched it. And uh, I'd actually, I'd love to check it out again. It used to be on Netflix. It's not anymore. Um, but I was uh, impressed by it and I wish they would kind of do an update and maybe add some more episodes to it. It's very heavy on art cinema. It's very heavy on foreign cinema, but it should be. It, it goes into American movies a lot too, but this is an equal look at movies and what makes movies great. And so it's not just, the big Hollywood blockbusters of the day are the most popular American movies. It's the entire world of cinema, which is what makes movies so great is that they come from all over the place. So it's not just, they're not just all coming from, you know, one street of studios in one city in one country. But CNN's The Movies is a good pick. If you just want to see some of the essential American films that you need to check out or be reminded of some of the classics you haven't thought about in a while and some of the directors that maybe you hadn't really gotten into yet, check out CNN's The Movies if you're uh, interested in that kind of thing. I think you, you'll get something out of it for sure, and there'll be some movies on there that you haven't seen yet that maybe uh, you just wrote off for whatever reason uh, that I think will it'll make you want to go check them out finally after... Uh, you know, enough time has passed there that uh, for whatever reason you never got around to them. I think this one will make you want to get out and check them out. So CNN's The Movies right now is on demand from CNN. And uh, the story of film and Odyssey is right now not streaming anywhere, but I totally recommend you checking that out, uh, seeking it out wherever you can, uh, if you can find it. It's, it's fantastic. Great, deep dive look into movie history. And now for something completely different. Speaking of long-form documentaries, I also wanted to give you my thoughts on PBS's newest uh, Ken Burns documentary. This one gets into the history of country music, and it's just simply called Country Music. Uh, and this is a 16-hour film that is broken up um, not as easily as the CNN movies one is. It's not just decade at a time. It, this one is broken up more into themes, styles of country music. Uh, it is told in chronological order as Ken Burns's movies, you know, always are. Uh, and it's told in that classic Ken Burns style, lots of still photography, 
Um, lots of great interviews. This movie, was, it took a long time to make. I was reading that it took like eight years for this movie to finally be done, and it's kind of a labor of love, I guess. Uh, and that shows through, I think, in the final project there. Um, but if, if you're not interested in country music, you can skip this one. You're not going to really... I don't think this is going to make you much more interested in country music than you already were. But if you love country music or even like it just a little bit, this will reaffirm all of the reasons why you love this genre of music. And I am a person that has loved country music a lot in my life. It's the music I grew up with. Uh, I don't listen to a whole lot of what's on the radio now in country music just because it's so far removed from what it, the, the style that I like, but I still listen to country music a lot when I'm listening to music. And this movie is very interesting because it just ends in 1996. Like, as far as Ken Burns' country music is concerned, country music ended in 1996. They don't even go beyond that. Like, you're not going to see anything about current artists. You're not going to see Luke Bryan. You're not going to see Dirks Bentley. You're not going to see, like, Keith Urban hear about his music, Brad Paisley. None of these guys are on this movie as far as their music is concerned. This this ends in 1996. That's as new as it gets for whatever reason. I don't know why they chose to do it that way, but I wasn't really complaining because that was a great, you know, changing period of time when country music really blew up and became the big uh, modern mainstream record sale juggernaut that it has has been since that time. So, it ends with guys like Garth Brooks uh, and George Strait and Alan Jackson. It ends kind of in that day uh, and the Judds and, and, and artists like that. But uh, this goes way back. You get, you know, you start out with kind of Jimmy Rogers in the, uh, the old, old days, you know, almost a hundred years ago now. And this movie is definitely interested in the history of country music, how it became, what it would end up becoming, uh, how it changed over the years and, the artists who carried the torch all that time um, through Nashville and around uh, around the country as well. But what Beth and I did, we didn't watch the entire movie. I was only interested in about the last half of it. So we started with uh, we started in the episode that picked up in the middle of the 1960s. It, the episode was called uh, "Will the Circle Be Unbroken." And we watched from there through the end. So we watched the final six hours of this documentary. This thing is actually 16 hours long, so I didn't even watch half of it. So I'm not going to sit here and act like I watched the entire thing and tell you. But from what I saw, I mean, if you like Ken Burns' style, and if you're interested in country music at all, definitely give this thing a watch because you'll get something out of it and you'll learn a lot from it. And you'll hear some great interviews. There's a lot of really good interviews with people like Willie Nelson and Marty Stewart and uh, Merle Haggard and Roseanne Cash uh, just tons of really, really good interviews uh, and country music historians and radio DJs and stuff like that that Ken Burns talked to for this film. Uh, but it's not bogged down with interviews. There's a lot of really good insight. Uh, the writing, to me, was what really impressed me. I, I thought uh, the guy that wrote this documentary, he's a guy named Dayton Duncan. And uh, Dayton Duncan is somebody who has written several books, you know, American history and stuff like that. He's written a lot about, so he's a gifted writer and it really comes through. I was very impressed with this guy's writing in this movie. I, I thought it showed a great grasp of the, the breadth of country music. And what you really get out of this movie is how in country music, there are so many links. Like it's just a big family. It really is. 
uh, of artists. And these guys all know each other. They've all worked with each other. They've all written for each other, produced for each other, sat in on each other's sessions, sang the same songs. Um, it's just a beautiful kind of family of music, and that's what, to me, makes country music very unique from other styles of music. Jazz is this way as well. Artists play with each other all the time. They play the same songs a lot of times in different ways. They love to listen to each other. The blues has been that way for a long time. But rock and roll, not as much. Rock and roll is a lot more, uh, a lot more of an individual medium, I feel like, and uh Pop music and rap music especially are much more individual, iconoclastic kind of uh, forms of music where you're not that interested in what the guys before you did or said. You're just interested in what you have to say and in you know kind of telling your own story. You're not interested in teaming up in the studio with some old guy and doing a song with him. Whereas in country music, they all revere the old artists so much that they uh, consider, you know, these places in Nashville to be sacred ground that they treat them with such respect. I mean, it's almost like a religion in some ways, more than a type of music. So, uh, and you get that from this movie, just how much respect there is for the people within the business of country music uh, and how much artistry is there. People like Rodney Crowell doing interviews in this uh, movie really impressed me just talking uh, you know, about why they love country music and why they um, feel it's the ultimate form of uh, of expression in American music. Uh, Peter Coyote, again, wonderful narrator. I loved his work in the Vietnam War documentary that Ken Burns did that I raved about here on the show when it came out. Uh, Peter Coyote just added a whole new level of uh, intensity to that thing. And I think him doing the country music doc uh, was a great choice as well. He you know, really was able to give the right inflections and give uh, the whole thing just some power and some weight uh, that it needed when talking about uh, a genre of art that's as important as country music is in the history of our country. The interviews, again, top-level talent. I was very impressed with the people they got. Garth Brooks, Vince Gill, people like that gave interviews as well. Tricia Yearwood. Um, the movie did tend to gravitate more toward people that it had interviews with, though, in terms of the spotlight that it uh, kind of shined on different artists. Uh, so that was a little, you know, not that great for me. It was talking more about people who gave interviews than it was about people who didn't give interviews for whatever reason. Um, but really, it's a very comprehensive movie. It kind of gets into a little bit of everything and everyone. There were plenty of artists, of course, that I love that weren't covered very much. I, I would have, you know, sat through a 20-minute segment on Steve Earle uh, or some more of the old alt-country guys like him. They did talk a lot about Dwight Yoakam. They did, again, talk a lot about Roseanne Cash. Uh, they talked a lot about Rodney Crowell, Towns Van Zant people like that. So I did appreciate that, but there was nothing really about like Jerry Jeff Walker and, and nothing really about Ray Wiley Hubbard. And, you know, they didn't talk about the highwaymen as a group and that was surprising to me. So Steve Goodman, you know, wasn't really mentioned at all. So there were a lot of people that were left out in this thing, but it really did cover a lot as well. And the way it was done was typical Ken Burns fashion. Very well done. Um, I mean, it's not the entire history of country music, but it does a pretty damn good job of getting to it. And again, I just think ending it in 1996 throws a lot of shade at current artists. And I thought that was that was kind of funny, actually. Uh, but this is right now streaming for you on the PBS app. It's 16 hours long. It's called Ken Burns Country Music and uh, totally recommended again if you're interested in country music at all. 
uh, or just music history at all, give it a watch. I think you'll you'll be sucked in. But I didn't watch the first few hours, so I can't tell you from those. Those t- tend to, when you get back into that time period, I don't know. I just And I've heard so much about Hank Williams over the years, I didn't feel like I needed to watch a two-hour episode on Hank Williams, so I skipped past that one as well. But, uh, you know, I mean, if you're into that kind of stuff, then certainly check it out. I do like Jimmy Rogers' music, but I don't know if I want to sit there for an hour and hear about Jimmy Rogers dying of tuberculosis and writing the songs, <laughs> writing Blue Yodel, you know? I'm so lonesome, I could cry. Country music comes from right in here. This heart and soul that we all have. You can dance to it. You can make love to it. You can play it at a funeral. It has something in it for everybody. Country music is about human emotions. If you want to look for, like, super strong women telling really amazing stories, you went to country. I mean, the songs are just life. It's I've seen it or I've lived it. And I, I never would tell my husband which one was. <laughs> I believe that you can go look and find a country song that will help you feel better. Sometimes it might make you cry, but you'll feel better. This is the story of a uniquely American art form that sometimes gets defined as three chords in the truth. And the people who made it, created it, and how it became a business. Hello, I'm Johnny Kay. My dad... He worked out all of his problems on stage. That's where he took his anguish and fears and griefs, and he worked them out with an audience. That's just who he was. I hope that when people hear of this series, that they'll tune in. It made a convert out of me. It's a wonderful story. Crazy. I'm crazy. I always thought it was a really good song. And I played it for Patsy Cline, and she thought it was a great song. It's phenomenally great music about people who felt their stories weren't being told. I think that's utterly American. All right, let me tell you about the best thing I watched this month because it wasn't either of those documentaries. It was instead a movie that came from 1980, a film called Atlantic City. This is one of those movies that I didn't watch for whatever reason. I never got around to. It was one of those movies that I would always see the cover at the DVD stores whenever I you know, go. I spent way too many time and way too many dollars over the years combing through DVD stores looking for things to add to my collection. And Atlantic City was one of those that I would always see the cover of. I thought it looked interesting. It sounded interesting, but I just I never uh, I, I never bit the hook all the way on it. But I finally did. I checked it out from the library, and, man, I loved this film. It was very good. Uh, nice little crime picture, but also lighter weight and more fun than something like directed by Martin Scorsese. It was uh, more full of life than a movie like that, even though it does have some violence in it. And it is kind of sad and grim. So anyway, what what Atlantic City is about is it follows this old former, he used to be like mixed up with gangsters, but he was never really a, a, a gangster himself. He kind of had a reputation of being like a coward, but he ran around with these guys and he wanted to be a big shot. And in his own foggy memories, he thinks of himself as a big shot from those days. But he finally gets a chance to really be a criminal at an old age when he kind of stumbles into uh, a nice little... Uh, 
a nice uh, little package of cocaine and decides to sell that and make a little bit of money for himself. He's living in this shitty hotel that's being torn down all around him. Uh, and anyway, the guy is played by Burt Lancaster, who ended up being nominated for an Oscar for this part, uh, easily could have won it because he's fantastic in this movie. Um, and Susan Sarandon is his co-star. She ends up, she plays this uh, waitress who works in an Atlantic City casino selling seafood. Uh, she ends up smelling like seafood at the end of every day. She's horribly embarrassed by this. So she washes herself with lemon juice every day to get the smell off of her. And uh, the old guy kind of watches her through the window and falls in love with her. But anyway, she's really young. He's really old. Uh, they end up running around together, getting into some uh, misadventures, I should say, around Atlantic City and getting into some dangerous scrapes. But uh, it's just, it was just a beautiful movie full of, uh, kind of great messages about nostalgia and how dangerous that can be and, uh, making sure that you live your life for the right reasons and, and kind of the, how lying to yourself can be very dangerous at the end of the day. But I just thought Burt Lancaster and Susan Sarandon were both so fantastic in this movie to think, uh, it was directed by Louis Mal, who was a French director who's done some really notable movies, done some, some very interesting movies, mostly foreign uh, but this was one of his American films, and it was really good. One of those Best Picture nominees uh, from 1980. It was nominated for the Big Five Academy Awards, and it didn't win a single one, uh, which is a shame because this was a really, really good movie. I was very impressed by it. So if you're looking for something, if you like a, a crime movie, uh, check it out, man. Atlantic City. It's kind of got that that great intersection of 70s movie making and 80s uh, filmmaking with kind of the grit of the 70s, the heart of the 80s all together and uh it's a it's a beautiful movie really really well done with kind of the soul of the east coast all throughout it so again it came out in 1980 it's called atlantic city it's nice to have money to have things this belonged to grace's husband quirky pincer a personal friend pouligny montrachet 1966. Smell. okay i'll do it Teach me stuff? Like what? What you know. You want information or wisdom? Both. I'll think about it. You know, the smartest man in the world was on a, a quiz show, and he was winning everything under the sun. You know how they finally tripped him up? He knew everything under the sun except his social security number. <laughs> he, he could have had the world. What's yours? I don't have a social security number. Everybody's got a social security number. You pay income tax? Nope. You still got your fingerprints? Well, sure, I got them. <laughs> Let me see. I also loved the movie Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which I finally watched this month, um, and the movie Your Name, which is an anime that came out in 2016. watched both of those this month, and I was very impressed by them as well. But not quite as impressed as I was by Atlantic City. All right, I always tell you about movies that are now streaming here at the end of the show, and I want to do that, but I want to give you some horror movies. So I'm not going to give you something funny and something serious. I'm just going to tell you the best horror movies that are now streaming across the big streaming platforms. First off, on Netflix, if you're looking for something to scare you this month, check out the uh, Scream movies. All four of them are uh, ready for you on Netflix. The first two are really good. The last two, I haven't even seen the fourth one, so I'm not sure how great it is. The third one, you know, is just kind of more of the same. But it wasn't bad either. They're all funny in their own way and, and, and scary as well. 
Uh, but just there's that love of horror cinema in Scream is what makes them so memorable um, and what makes them 90s classics. So if you haven't seen the first Scream, then just drop what you're doing and watch it right now because it really is one of the better slasher movies ever made. So the Scream movies are all on Netflix if you're looking for four movies to watch. Also, The Witch is on Netflix. I've recommended it a million times on this show. Check it out. It's fantastic. It's got a great ending. It's just a eerie, scary freaking movie. Carrie is on Netflix right now, the original classic with uh, Sissy Spacek. Love that movie. Um, Candyman is right now on Netflix. Very creepy movie. Uh, if you were ever into looking in the mirror and saying Bloody Mary and stuff like that, that's what Candyman is about. But the guy's real and he comes out and uh, kills you. So anyway, Tony Todd's fantastic in it. The Conjuring is also on Netflix. Really good ghost movie in the, the past few years. And it has kicked off a very lucrative franchise. But the first one was very good. I was impressed with it when I went and saw it in theaters when it came out. On Amazon Prime right now, Hereditary is streaming. I, uh, last year, I picked this as the best movie of the year. It was my number one movie of the year, and I stand by that. I've rewatched it. I think it's one of the best horror movies ever made. Um, it's it's a great drama in its own right, a family drama that turns into a terrifying horror movie. It's got a great ending. It's got uh, fantastic acting, and it's just totally creepy as hell. It just sticks with you, and you will not be able to sleep after watching it. So Hereditary right now on Amazon, I could not recommend it more. It is the best horror movie to come out in a decade, I would say, uh, and I need need you to check it out if you haven't already. A Quiet Place is also on Amazon. This one was really good. This was the one with John Krasinski and Emily Blunt. Uh, Krasinski directed it, and... Um, it was about these monsters who could hear, had like super hearing. They, they couldn't see those. So you had to, everyone had to be really quiet in the world or they would be killed. And it was about Krasinski and Blunt with their two kids, um, one of whom is deaf. And uh, they're trying to survive in this awful world. Uh, Children of the Corn is also on Amazon. It's a little corny but uh, and funny, but also very good. Shadow of the Vampire is on Amazon as well. That's a really good drama horror if you're looking for something like that. On Hulu right now, Child's Play is streaming for you. A classic, funny and scary all at once. The original Child's Play. Hellraiser is also there for you. That one still creeps me out. And I really, I just think it's so original. Really well done. Great, creepy, practical makeup effects. Um, and just a cool movie. So Hellraiser is there for you. And The Invasion of the Body Snatchers from the 1970s. That one is there for you as well on Hulu. And finally, on HBO Now, I'm going to throw at you Funny Games because I rewatched this one recently. I hated it the first time I saw it. It was probably 15 years ago, first time I saw it, 10, 15 years ago, something like that, when it first came out. I just wasn't ready for it yet, my friend. I wasn't there yet. I wasn't ready to be liberated from the shackles of expectations of Hollywood horror movies. I kept waiting for the hero to come in. I kept waiting for some relief from this tension, but it never came. And that, to me, felt like a failure on the filmmaker's part. But now I realize with watching it how liberating this movie is and how truly dark and great this movie is because it takes so many rules, shreds them up, and acts like they never existed. So there's just something freeing about a movie like Funny Games where it just throws all those rules out of the window because those rules are so important when you're watching these movies, but you realize when you watch a movie like Funny Games, you don't really need them. So that one is on HBO Now. Totally recommended if you're looking for something to scare the shit out of you this month. 
in October. All right, that's going to do it for the Stream Police Podcast. Thanks for hanging out with us again this month, my friend. Hit me up on Gmail at theclintdavis at gmail.com and uh, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis. I'll be happy to hear from you and happy to share my movie viewing with you. Check us out again next month. Thanks again, Andy Sedlak, for, uh, for helping us out, my friend. And uh, thank you very much for listening, my friend. Always good to always good to chat with you. Until next time, stream on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.